We have lots of visitors tonight, and we're very grateful for you. We're glad that you came our way, and we hope that all of us will be able to say when we have finished our time together in worship tonight that it was good for us to be here. Thanks to those of you who are visiting. As always, we invite you to come back every time you have a chance, and we invite your questions if you have any about what we're doing here at College View. One of the things that we are doing here at College View is trying to learn memory verses. We've been doing this for a year, and we've decided to continue it. We keep the current memory verse scribbled out on this uh, board here to my right, your left, uh, and we've slowed down a little bit. We're taking now just one new memory verse a month so that we can make sure that we keep our old ones committed to memory as we're learning new ones. Um, we're up to 32 now. This new memory verse makes 32 memory verses. I want to tell you, if you can remember all 32 of the memory verses we've been working on, you're doing well. You're doing well, and that's a good thing, and I encourage everybody to keep working at that. This is our last week for Jude verse 3, so I thought what we might do tonight is to spend some time analyzing that verse, because there is just so much truth in it, uh, and maybe that will help us really get this one locked in as we move next week on to another new memory verse. So Jude verse 3 is the verse that we want to consider and analyze in our study tonight. It's clear as we read this that Jude was in the process of planning a correspondence to Christians. Perhaps he was actually writing it when he was moved by the Holy Spirit. He was an inspired man and he was urged to sort of change the message perhaps and and include a stronger warning. He said, when I gave all diligence to you to write of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write to you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered. From the subsequent context of this short book of Jude, we understand that false doctrine was threatening the security of the early church. And so Jude was compelled. He felt constrained. It was necessary for him to write to them about contending for the faith. Well, several things we want to point out, and that's just all we're going to do in this study tonight. We want to notice some things. First of all, notice he refers to the faith, that you should earnestly contend for the faith. The faith, that expression, when used here, describes a unified body of doctrine. Now, faith is used in different ways throughout the, the New Testament. Sometimes it's used to refer to a person's own level of belief or commitment. For instance, in Matthew chapter 8 at verse 10, it speaks of a person who had great faith. In Romans chapter 14 verse 1, it talks about some people who had weak faith. So when it's talking about faith there on the personal level, it may be talking about an individual's own belief and commitment. But frequently, however, faith, and especially the expression the faith, is used objectively of a body of doctrine, a a gospel system. For instance, look in Acts chapter 6 and verse 7. Notice the usage there in Acts chapter 6, verse 7. It says, The word of God increased, and the number of disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. Now there, it's not talking about their personal faith, it's talking about this system of doctrine that they aligned with, that they complied with, that they were obedient to. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 23, 
In Galatians 1, verse 23, But they had heard only that he which persecuted us in times past now preacheth the faith which he once destroyed. It's talking about Saul of Tarsus after his conversion. He had once persecuted these, but now he preaches what? He preaches the faith that he once destroyed. And so he was preaching that system of doctrine. Uh, we see that in, in numerous places throughout the New Testament. For instance, in, in 1 Timothy 5, verse 8, it talks about those who were denying the faith. In 1 Timothy 4, verse 1, it talks about some who were falling away from the faith. And so, it is in that sense that Jude here refers to the faith. We need to understand what he's saying is we need to contend for this system of doctrine, this gospel message that has been preached. That's what he was encouraging them to do. Notice that it is the faith. One, singular in nature. The New Testament does not sanction the idea of many faiths. Now, if we were to talk to people uh, in our community, if we were to go out and take a poll of people right here in Columbia, Tennessee, they would say, oh yeah, there's lots of different faiths. There are multiple faiths. There are many faiths. What's your faith? I have my faith. What's your faith? Would be the idea. In fact, sometimes we hear people uh, talk about the faith of your choice, as though there are many and you can choose one. But of course, the New Testament never speaks in those terms. In fact, another one of our memory verses is Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, where it says, There is one body and one spirit, even as you're called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, how many faiths? One faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. There is one faith. It is singular in nature. Um, now, if there is just one faith, uh, this would go uh, along with what we talked about in our lesson this morning. If there's just one faith, it certainly implies that Christians can believe and teach the same doctrine. That, that it is not permissible to go out and teach different things. In fact, you remember Paul strongly encouraged the Christians at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing. And that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. And so, uh, understand, when Jude here in verse 3 talks about the faith, he's talking about that system of doctrine, that gospel whole, if you will. And there's just one. There are not different ones. There are not multiple ones. You can't choose yours and let me choose mine. We're all supposed to be believing and teaching the same thing. Now, notice concerning this faith that Jude is talking about, it has been delivered unto the saints. And that suggests the idea that it was given by God. It's divinely given or delivered. The language experts would tell us that this verb, delivered, is in the passive form. And that means that the Christians didn't invent it themselves. They didn't come up with it. It was given to them. They didn't originate it. They didn't start it. It wasn't the product of their own imagination. But it was delivered to them. Passive voice means someone else was involved and it came to them from another source. That's what Paul affirmed throughout his teaching. For instance, in Galatians chapter 1, 
when Paul was talking about this gospel that he preached, notice what he said in Galatians 1, beginning verse 11. For I make known to you, brethren, as touching the gospel which was preached by me, that it is not after man, for neither did I receive it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came to me through revelation of Jesus Christ. So Paul claimed that, and we must surely believe it. There is one faith, and it was delivered from God. It came from that divine source. Now, that being the case, just common sense would tell us if God gave it, it cannot be improved upon. It should not be altered. It should not be added to. Nothing should be taken away from it. If God gave it, it is perfect, and we need to view it that way. So it was the faith, the single system of doctrine or gospel that was delivered from God. Notice it was once delivered to the saints. The faith which was once delivered to the saints. And that idea suggested is full, final, and complete. Newer versions, I think, are better than the King James. This is the King James, and that's when we're memorizing these verses, we're using the King James rendering. We have to choose one, and that's the one we've chosen. But I actually like other translations better than the King James here in that part of this passage. The King James just says, once delivered to the saints, Newer translations give, I think, a fuller meaning when it says when they will say something like "once for all delivered to the saints." Now, if something's been done once and for all, that means it's done, and it's not going to be repeated, and it's not going to be uh, duplicated. It once for all delivered to the saints. The Greek term here is hapax, and that word is used some other places. And I just want to emphasize to you the idea. Once for all time. Notice, for instance, in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28, it says, For Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. And to them that look for him, look un, and unto them that look for him shall he appear a second time without sin unto salvation. Emphasis on Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. How many times does Christ need to be nailed to the cross? Well, he's done that once, and that, that, he doesn't need to do that anymore. It's finished. His, his sacrificial death on the cross is a completed thing. It doesn't have to be repeated, right? Well, that's the term. That's the same usage here. Just as Christ was once crucified to serve as a sacrifice for our sins, this faith was once delivered to the saints. It doesn't have to be repeated. It's not going to be added to or duplicated. Look at another place where we see the, the word and its usage in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. In 1 Peter 3, verse 18, Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the, in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Notice, Christ was hath once suffered for sins. A finished thing. A completed thing. That's that term. It's the same term we're finding here. And it suggests that finished process. God's system of truth then, the faith, was fully and finally made known to man in this New Testament record. Uh, there's no ongoing revelation. Uh, there's no confirming miracles as there were in the first century. God was revealing the truth and confirming it with miracles. That sort of thing is not happening. You know, we recently studied in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 where the Apostle Paul makes it clear that the 
miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit were going to end, and he told when they were going to end. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 8, Charity never faileth, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. There Paul was clearly saying that when this revelation is complete, then the process by which it was being delivered would be taken away. And that's exactly the notion that Jude here is confirming when he says it was once for all delivered to the saints. Now, the faith which was once delivered and finally unto the saints. The idea here is that this gospel system has been entrusted to us. Uh, it's, it's, it's like the idea of someone putting something very valuable under your oversight and care to protect it, to keep it. Uh, in, in fact, that sort of notion is seen in the way Paul used a similar expression in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 20. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 20, Paul said to Timothy, O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust, uh, avoiding profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science falsely so-called. King James says, Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust. That's the idea and the same kind of expression. I think other versions actually say that which is deposited in your trust. You know, when we put, if you have a bank account or if you have a bank deposit box and you put something valuable in it, you're expecting them to keep it, protect it. It's entrusted to them. And that's the idea with us and the gospel. It was delivered from God once for all time and it's entrusted to us. Now, since it's been entrusted to us, Obviously, that would suggest the idea that we need to be teaching it, proclaiming the message. I think definitely it would suggest the idea that it needs to be defended against those who would attack it and teach falsely about it. In our sermon this morning, we used Philippians chapter 1, verse 17, where Paul said he was set for the defense of the gospel. Well, why do you feel so strongly about that anyway? Well, because he had this concept well in mind that this had been entrusted to him and he felt duty bound to protect it. And so he said he was set for the defense of the gospel. All right. So here's, I think this part of the memory verse is the part that we remember the easiest. Earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered to the saints. There's a lot in that. Uh, again, understand how the faith is used. That's very important. And there's just one system of doctrine, the faith, given by God, full and complete, not going to be added to or, or, or changed or duplicated. It has been entrusted to us. Now, before we conclude our study, let's look at the words that go just before that phrase. Earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered to the saints. First thing I would emphasize is that the idea of contending for the faith should be done earnestly. We're to contend for the faith. Do it earnestly. That expression denotes that there should be a real passion about this. It's not a, oh well, you know, it doesn't matter. It's not important. You know, if you, you do your thing, I'll do my thing. It, it, it doesn't, it's not really significant. That is not the case at all. Uh, you are to earnestly contend for the faith. Uh, 
What if, you parents, what if your child, or for any of us, what if there was some loved one that was in serious danger or jeopardy, uh, maybe under attack, maybe being threatened in one way or another? What would you do? Would you say, oh, well, not important. It's not a big deal. Don't worry about it. No, we would passionately do whatever was needed to protect that child or loved one. And that's the idea here. Earnestly contend for the faith. This is important. This is not to be taken lightly. This is a not, this is not one of those insignificant things. This is very important. And so, uh, we would stress, first of all, that this contending for the faith should be done earnestly. Secondly, there's a difference between contending and being contentious. Uh, I hope you, I hope you catch my meaning there. Um, unfortunately, there are some who know no method of teaching other than the, the bludgeoning technique. You know, I'll beat you over the head with it and you will submit or else sort of idea. And, and that's not, and they might use this verse to justify that approach. And that's not what they're saying. To contend does not mean to be contentious. The kind of people that we're suggesting will insult and degrade any potential, uh, uh, person who disagrees, uh, I've actually known, and I hope that you haven't known many, I've not known a lot, but I've known some, and I hope you haven't known too many either, people who feel like that they, uh, unless they've made someone angry, they haven't really done their job of preaching the truth. We don't have, that's, that's the wrong approach. Now, uh, use Jesus as the perfect example in this. Certainly, uh, there were times when Jesus was really sharp and, and confrontational with the hypocritical leaders among the Jews. Uh, they should have known better than what they were doing, and he was, he was very straight and strict with them. But typically, he was uh, gentle and compassionate with those that he taught, those who were honestly seeking to know him and his truth. In fact, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 20, the statement, the prophetic statement about him is, is applied to Jesus when it says, A bruised reed shall he not break, and smoking flax shall he not quench, till he send forth judgment unto victory. And so, Jesus had this just exactly right, and we need to pattern ourselves after him, but we would just stress that contending for the faith does not mean that we must be contentious uh, about the faith. Furthermore, we would stress that Contending for the faith is not the idea of binding one's own personal opinions. Uh, contending for the faith is not making laws for God. Uh, co- coercing others to come to my own peculiar opinion about what the will of God is in the absence of divine revelation. And I can't prove it from Scripture, but I feel strongly about it, and you must believe what I believe about that. That's not contending for the faith. You can't be contending for your, your own opinions when you don't have Scripture uh, to support the conclusions. The Pharisees, of course, were guilty of that. The Pharisees in the day of Jesus were doing that very thing. They were binding their own human traditions and opinions on others. And, of course, Jesus gave a, uh, a firm denunciation of that practice. Uh, the whole, almost the whole chapter of Matthew 23 is devoted to him condemning that practice of the Pharisees. We're sad to say, of course, that uh, their breed is not extinct in the world today, and there are some who would still do the same thing, uh, 
contending for the faith does not equate to binding my own personal opinions and others have to come to my way of thinking or else that is not so. I would also argue that contending for the faith shows no favoritism. Paul actually said to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 21, he told Timothy, do nothing by partiality. Now, that's an important principle, and I think we all need to take that to heart. Uh, you know, we, we are all tempted to maybe look the other way if the person who is in error and who needs to be contended with is a family member or a close personal friend or someone I really like. And I'm, I'm, I'm tempted to tone it down and maybe sweep it under the rug if it's someone close to me. Now, if it's someone I don't like, man, I'll come after him, you know, uh, aggressively. But if it's someone I'm really close to, uh, I'm tempted to play favorites. That's not contending for the faith either. We remember the episode that's vividly recorded in Galatians chapter 2 when Peter had come to Antioch. It was a Gentile church and he was freely associating with the new converts among the Gentiles there. But when some Jews came up from Jerusalem and Peter withdrew himself from the Gentiles that he had just previously been openly associating with, uh, Paul knew that that sort of hypocrisy and inconsistency could not go unchallenged. And therefore, it says in Galatians chapter 2, that he resisted him to the face and rebuked him publicly for doing that. Don't you think that it would have been easy for Paul to say, wait a minute, this is Peter. Man, he was with the Lord himself. He's one of the main guys from Jerusalem. Uh, I'm not really fond of what he's doing here, but I'm going to have to just look the other way, uh, let this pass on account of it's Peter. And, you know, I just can't say anything about it. Paul did not do that, of course. Uh, would you agree with me that one of the greatest tests of man's character is whether or not he has the determination to stand even if it means standing against a friend or standing against a family member who has drifted into error. That's a test, isn't it? It's not hard to do it when it's a guy I hardly know and what I do know about him I don't really like anyway. That's not hard. But it's harder when it's someone that has been close. But contending for the faith shows no favoritism. All right, so that's our memory verse. If you haven't firmly committed it to memory, you have this week to do it before we add a new one next Sunday, Lord willing. But it certainly, I think, sets a strong challenge before us. Uh, there's a lot of confusing things going on uh, in the world, uh, but among our own brethren, there are a lot of confusing things going on. Things are changing, and they're not changing in a good way. And we should pray that the Lord would grant us the wisdom to accept this responsibility of contending for the faith, to do it with devotion and firmness, to have good sense, to have love, uh, to have a, 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 an abiding commitment to the cause of Christ and to the truth of the gospel. That's what we must do, earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered to the saints. Thanks for your good attention to what we've had to say. We're going to conclude the lesson with a song of invitation. We always do that. We would never want to meet together and not give an opportunity for any and all who are here 
to make a decision to get right with God. If you're not a Christian yet, that would involve obeying that simple gospel plan of salvation. Hear, believe, repent, confess, be baptized for the remission of sins. If you're ready to do that, we're ready to assist. We'd be also more than ready to study with you more if you have questions before you make that decision. Just let us know. If you're a Christian already, but you've fallen away, we beg you come back in repentance, confession, and prayer. Let us know how we can help while we stand and sing this song.